Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Emergency Docs. I'm Dr. R. Please keep in mind that the content in this episode does not constitute medical advice and is purely for the purpose of education. Today, we have a very interesting guest who's an expert in all things creepy, crawly, and venomous, Dr. Spencer Green. And I questionably met Dr. Green close to 10 years ago, maybe at the Houston Venom Conference, maybe at TSEP, and he currently directs the Houston Venom Conference. The Venom Conference sounds scary, but it's actually very interesting, and I can verify that at least in the years I attended, no doctors were harmed at the conference. Dr. Green is the Director of Toxicology and an attending emergency physician at HCA Houston Healthcare Kingwood. He's a clinical professor at the University of Houston College of Medicine, and he's authored more than 50 book chapters and scholarly articles and is the recipient of multiple teaching and clinical awards. So welcome, Dr. Green. Thanks. Very happy to be here. No doctors have been harmed at any of the Houston Venom Conference. Okay, event. good. Glad to um, verify that. <laughs> I was almost harmed when my colleagues almost dropped me, but that's a different uh, issue. So oh, no one wow. has been harmed by a dangerous animal. So that's good. That's that's an important clarification. <laughs> cool. So did you always know you wanted to be a doctor or kind of tell me how you got into medicine? It's kind of bizarre, actually. So I grew up on Long Island back in the you know early 70s when the Islanders had a dynasty. And from the time I was a zygote until I was about five, I wanted to be an ice hockey player. And then a switch flipped when I was five and I decided I want to be an ophthalmologist. And I have no idea why. I didn't have any eye trouble back then and I didn't know any ophthalmologists very well. I just, I, I, I want to be an eye doctor. I have no idea why. Now, ironically, I've since married an optometrist, but I think that's a coincidence. Yeah, so when I turned five, I decided I'm going to be an eye doctor. And from five until about 18, I want to be an eye doctor. And then at 18, I knew I wanted to be a physician, but I started thinking about other things. And I was reading a lot of those Michael Crichton novels. I'm like, oh, I'll be a neuropsychiatrist. But then I realized I don't like the endings of any of his books, so maybe I shouldn't do that. And then I thought about surgery before I realized I have no dexterity and I can't stand still long enough to be in the operating room. But then in college, I got involved in EMS. And after I graduated from college and when I was attending graduate school, I was working full time in the fire department so that when I entered medical school, I knew I would do emergency medicine. And for all but six hours of medical school, I knew I was doing emergency medicine. Uh, for six hours, I thought about anesthesiology because that was kind of cool too. I like the procedures and I like the medications. So that's how I got into medicine. But not ophthalmology. Uh, how I got, but not ophthalmology. And then how I got into tox and specifically snake bites uh, are two other stories. So when I entered residency at Vanderbilt, I was really the only one in all three classes who had a real EMS background. So I figured my future lay in EMS. And I got involved with a bunch of things. I was teaching a class for medical students as an intern. I was teaching at the local paramedic program. And I loved all things EMS. But then I met the toxicologist at Vanderbilt, Donna Seeger. At the time, she was president of the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. And she was amazing. She was this great clinician, this great educator. And I loved everything about tox. I loved, you know, the overdoses, the drug abuse, the plants, the mushrooms, the snakes, the occupational exposures, just this whole body of knowledge that most doctors never learn. So I knew right away that I want to be a toxicologist. And, you know, I did a little bit of extra toxicology in residency and I could have done my fellowship right after residency, but I had a military obligation to fulfill. I chose to fulfill it right away rather than defer it. So I went off to Wright State University in Ohio. People always joke, Wright State, wrong city. But you know what? Dayton's great and I love Wright State. And uh, I'm actually on faculty there as well uh, right now. And I went off teaching toxicology. I essentially started out a few weeks ahead of the residents, but after three years, I, I kind of learned a lot. So I had a, an advantage when I started res uh, fellowship, rather. But I deployed 
in 2006, I deployed to Iraq and I was with a, uh, a special unit. I can't go into great details until 2031, but let's just say I had a lot of downtime. And one day I found a dead snake on our property and I sort of became fascinated with the local fauna. And I realized, you know, I love snakes and scorpions and spiders and it's 135 degrees. And I love that too. I'm going to go train somewhere in the Southwest that's famous for snake bites. And I'm going to learn all about snake bites. So I did my fellowship at Good Sam in Phoenix, uh, which is now, I guess, Banner University Medical Center, Phoenix. And uh, I learned all about snake bites. And that's really what I've devoted my career to since then. Although, uh, of course, I do all toxicology, my favorite part. And for what I'm best known is snake bites. Let's talk a little bit about toxicology and what specifically you have to do to become a toxicologist. Like what steps in training do you have to take to become a toxicologist? All right. So, you know, toxicology is basically the science or the study of any exogenous substance on a person or a system. And there's all sorts of toxicologists. It's kind of a very nebulous and generic term. I am a medical toxicologist because I'm a physician who does toxicology for living patients. There are other types of toxicologists. There are clinical toxicologists who, who also treat patients, but who are not physicians. So we have pharmacists, for example, who work as clinical toxicologists. I am a medical toxicologist. Then you have forensic toxicologists who don't touch patients, but rather they analyze blood and urine and other tests to determine what exogenous substance was responsible for some sort of toxicity. And then you have people completely outside the realm of medicine. You have environmental toxicologists. And you have, you know, industrial hygienists and people who just look at how chemicals and other things can affect environments. So to be a medical toxicologist, it's a fellowship. And most medical toxicologists did residencies in emergency medicine. Uh, I think the statistics is something more than 85% of medical toxicologists did a residency in emergency medicine. But you don't have to be an emergency physician. You can get boarded in medical toxicology as a subboard from emergency medicine, pediatrics, or preventive medicine. And I know medical toxicologists who did their primary training in internal medicine and pediatrics, uh, some who did pediatrics and then pediatric emergency medicine and then tox, or who did peds and peds could pair then tox. There are some nephrologists who are toxicologists. There's a family practitioner who's a toxicologist. There's at least one psychiatrist who's a toxicologist, and there's at least one neurologist who's a toxicologist. Pretty much anyone, probably with a few exceptions, can do a toxicology fellowship, but you may have to do additional training, additional uh, rotations, depending on where you are and what your background is. For example, if you do psychiatry, you probably don't have a lot of critical care experience prior to fellowship, so you may have to do more. So to be a medical toxicologist, it's two years of fellowship, preceded by a residency of at least three years. So that's five years. You have four years of medical school. So it's at least, now I got to do math, at least nine years after graduating from college. Don't make me do math. I'm not working today. <laughs> All right. Just just a little addition and subtraction. Yes. You sort of touched on what toxicology is, but can you talk a little bit more about what sorts of cases a toxicologist would see or what types of things a toxicologist would do? Absolutely. I can tell you in the last week, it sort of ran the gamut. In the last seven days, I've been called for about four or five snake bites. So of course, I go in there, I assess them, treat them. I got called about some acute overdoses. Uh, some of them were intentional and one was purely accidental and slightly embarrassing for the guy. He grabbed the wrong bottle and downed a bottle of pain medicine by accident and fortunately immediately regretted it and came to the hospital where we took care of him and he did fine. Just two hours ago, I got called about someone who has altered mental status and there's nothing to say for sure it's tox, but it's certainly something to consider. When someone comes in with altered mental status, I think about all the 
potential etiologists, whether it's traumatic, you know, maybe they got hit in the head, or maybe they have a spontaneous bleed. Maybe there's some infectious etiology, you know, they could be septic or meningitic. Uh, they can have some sort of metabolic arrangements. Maybe it's hepatic encephalopathy, or maybe they have low blood sugar, but tox is always in there, whether it's intentional or unintentional, and whether it's from pills or an environmental exposure like carbon monoxide. So I get called for a lot of unclear cases where they have altered mental status, or if they have an unexplained end organ damage, like let's say they have really abnormal liver enzymes, they wonder, could it be a toxicologic exposure? So then I have to find out what do they do for work? What do they do for fun? What do they eat? What do they drink? Where do they live? You know, stuff like that. So I see those cases. I also see substance abuse. Um, I see a lot of alcohol withdrawal. One of my sickest patients right now is someone who has a bunch of metabolic derangements in the setting of alcohol ketoacidosis. Uh, sometimes when people have adverse reactions to medications, I get involved. It's a little bit of everything. So that's one of the things I like about it. It's it, You never know what you're going to get. And for better force, you never know how many you're going to get. I can go a day or two without a consult, and I may get six consults in a day. A few nights ago, I actually spent the night at the hospital because it wasn't worth driving back and forth because I kept getting called, so I slept in a call room even though I would have preferred to be at home. It sounds like a lot of detective work. It sounds really interesting. It, it really is. And that's what I love about it. You have this patient who has one or more problems. Maybe it's altered mental status. Maybe they have a neuropathy. And you try to figure out what could be causing it. You know, what do they do? Where have they traveled? You know, what were they exposed to? A lot of times people come to tox clinic thinking they've been poisoned or whatever. And more often than not, they're wrong. And sometimes they're a little bit goofy. But I had a woman who seemed perfectly normal and who turned out to be perfectly normal, she was concerned that her husband was poisoning her. And guess what? Her husband was poisoning her. And we were able to determine that based on her labs and when she was exposed to him, et cetera, he was using methanol to poison her. So you get some really neat stuff. And, wow. uh, and because of the circumstances, sometimes we're involved uh, with you know police and legal. It's really kind of neat. And that's one of the things I like doing as well, expert work, not only for malpractice, either defense or for the plaintiff, but for cases you know, that go to criminal court, you know, when there is an exposure and it's, it's really, it's kind of cool. And you, you don't know what you're going to see on a daily basis. Yeah. It's like emergency medicine, but almost like emergency medicine to the extreme, almost like what you see on TV, maybe with shows like house or, you know, things where you're going into a patient's yeah. um, place of living and really trying to figure out what's going on. It's funny you say that I've actually never watched house because I'm convinced I would hate it because they're probably inaccurate more than they're accurate because what I've heard about the show, they're not always correct. And I think it would drive me crazy. So to preserve my sanity, I don't watch the show. But yeah, you're playing detective. I think that's true of almost any medical show. <laughs> I mean, Scrubs, of course, is the best. Oh, I agree. I think most people in medicine agree that Scrubs is probably the best and also strangely very accurate. I never liked the fact that these internists were seeing pediatric patients because they're not MedPs residents, but, and the fact that they have different colored scrubs because I've never been in a hospital that had more than one color, but just other than those, I do think it's a great show and a pretty realistic show. Definitely. So we're here today to discuss snakes and snake bites. And so I've already seen a few snakes around my neighborhood this year, um, crawling out of bushes and such. So what are the best ways to avoid snake bites? All right. The best way to avoid snake bites is sort of a two-pronged approach. Around where you live, make your home inhospitable to snakes. Snakes are going to go where they can find food and shelter. Don't leave your grass high. Don't leave a bunch of junk or things in which they can hide. Don't have a rodent problem because if you have rodents, 
the snake's going to come after the rodents. Those are the kind of things you can do around your home. As for avoiding getting bitten, there are these notions about who gets bitten. And a lot of times what people think is true is not true. What people need to understand is that most bites occur when people are unaware of the snake. Most bites do not occur when people are intentionally messing with the snake. In our study, using data from the North American Snake Bite Registry, we found that only 90% of the bites were the result of intentionally interacting with the snake. The other 81% of the time, the people didn't know the snakes were there. And so many patients get bitten when they're walking around in the dark and they step on or near a snake, or when they reach into a bush or to a hole that they can't see. So the best way to avoid getting bitten is be aware of your surroundings. Wear appropriate footwear. Don't stick your hand or foot in places you can't see, especially at nighttime. So that's the best way to avoid getting bitten. That all makes sense and sort of brings me to my next question because I guess my assumption is I really only need to worry about getting bitten by a snake maybe when I'm in the wilderness, when I'm hiking or backpacking. But who needs to worry about getting bitten by a snake? Is it just certain regions, just certain activities, or is it everybody? Well, I mean, there are you know, big parts of the country where you'll probably never see a snake. And even in places where snakes are endemic, there are certain areas that have way more than others. Like, for example, where I live, we have five or six non-venomous snake species. There are no venomous snake species in and around my neighborhood, you know, which is unfortunate, I think, because I would love to find some of them. But I'm also happy for my neighbors. <laughs> You'd be the neighborhood um, hero. Yeah. I mean, I still am because they'll be thinking out about some <laughs> non-venomous water snake. Oh, my God, I got this. But, um, yeah, you just have to know where you live. There are places, for example, north of Houston, uh, not far from where I work, where there's snakes all the time. Like even when I was down in the medical center in Houston, more than 50% of my bites came from small neighborhoods north of the city. Now that I work north of the city, they're a lot closer to me. So you just have to know what's around. As for activities, it kind of depends on where you are. I've had patients get bitten in all sorts of circumstances. Some you can't really prepare for, others you can. So when people are hiking, yes. The good thing is they're usually wearing appropriate, usually wearing appropriate footwear. And they usually have tools so that they don't stick their hands somewhere. But you know what? Sometimes people make mistakes. A herpetologist friend of mine, someone who knows better, was out looking for snakes and she had a big rock that she wanted to move and she put her hand under the rock and as soon as she did it and she got tagged, she's like, I knew I shouldn't have done that. You know, it, as soon as she put her hand on the rock, she got envenomated and she knew right away that was a mistake. So you can sort of prepare for those. Just be smart. But at the same time, freak, you know, freak accidents happen. We had a kid get bitten once, bringing a box from his garage into his house. There was a snake in the box that was supposed to hold a printer. Well, it held a printer and a snake. Another kid was playing hide-and-seek under his parents' bed and got bitten by a copperhead that somehow had gotten to the house. So you can't prepare for everything. Uh, but again, if you make your house and your home you know, inhospitable to snakes, that does help. But something's just happened. You know, there was a kid who was... Uh, soaking in a hot tub and he reached up and he ended up petting a cottonmouth un unknowingly. So oh my no, some things happen. Well, just be aware and, and wear appropriate footwear. I say that all the time, you know, especially where I am, where we have primarily copperheads and cottonmouths and not rattlesnakes. Rattlesnakes tend to warn you more because they have a noisy rattle that copperheads and cottonmouths lack. Almost all my bites, I don't know the exact number, maybe 75%, 80% of the copperhead and cottonmouth bites are to the feet when people stepped on a snake while barefoot or were wearing flip-flops late at night. Everyone has a phone these days. Every phone has a flashlight. Half the time people leave the flashlight on unintentionally. Just use the flashlight when you're outside. Make sure you don't step on a snake and wear the appropriate footwear so if they bite your shoe, 
you don't get bitten. All all good points. So I remember you once told me that men with snake tattoos are very <laughs> likely to be bitten by a snake. And you might even have a statistic on this. So tell me a well, little more about that. So, you know, we often joke about the T's, the letter T of snake bite victims. It, it's been circulated for years. Some people call the six T's, five T's, seven T's. I'm up to 12. I'm going to see if I can do them from memory. <laughs> 12 but as, much as, as much as we joke about it, they're not actually true. Historically, the 12 T's in no particular order have been testosterone. And that, that is true because more than 50% of snake bite victims are men. So that's true. 20 something. In our study, the mean age was actually 39 or 36. I think it was 30, 35. Oh. Yeah. So, but that's still with a T. So there's a T in there. Teasing the snake. Certainly, if you mess with a snake intentionally, you're more likely to get bitten. But as I said before, in our study, only 19% of bites happen that way. The overwhelming majority were people who were not intentionally messing with the snake. We also joke about toothlessness and tattoos. Uh, and people love hearing that sort of funny thing, you know, but I don't know if it's really true. Now, and sometimes for fun, we also talk about the tooth to tattoo ratio. And I always say, if you have a tooth to tattoo ratio greater than four, you're protected. So if you have 28 teeth and two tattoos, your ratio is 14, you're probably fine. But if you have 12 teeth and 12 tattoos, your ratio is one and it's just a matter of time. And then we also take that to what you said before. If you have a snake-related tattoo, it's just a matter of time, so which means I will probably get envenomated at some point because of this. One of so, these days. So uh, then other teas, we talk about Texans because it's a tea and I'm in Texas. We talk about tequila. But again, alcohol is actually not commonly implicated in snake bites. There was a great study out of the uh, UT Southwestern. They found that fewer than 1% of envenomations were associated with alcohol or drug abuse, less than 1%. And it was even lower in the pediatric population, which is good. So as much as we joke about like the drunk yeah. playing with the snake, that's not how most bites happen. What are other teas? We've joked about taxpayer dependent being you know, poor, but really a lot of the bites are just normal people who are unaware of the snake. That said, intentionally messing with snake is not going to be good for you or for the snake. So, so don't do that. Again, all excellent points. That was really interesting about alcohol and substance abuse, though, because I definitely assumed that would be a major factor in in snake bites. But I guess kind of what you see is that it's just accidental. You're not aware of what is in your immediate surroundings or your box that you're carrying or under the bed. And that's kind of when those bites really tend to happen. Now, I will say that alcohol consumption is definitely a risk factor for a fatal snake bite. So one of the papers oh. we, we published last year looked at the fatalities from native snakes between 1989 and 2018. And alcohol was definitely a big risk factor, both because it led to them getting a severe inanimation and also because it led some people to not seeking medical care. You know, the only death from a Florida coral snake recorded in the last 30 something years was a gentleman in 2006 who was drinking, who got bitten and he didn't seek medical attention. Some of the fatal timber rattlesnake bites were associated with alcohol consumption. And a lot of them are also associated with um, snake handlers and religious services who didn't seek medical attention. So alcohol is a risk factor for a fatal bite and for a severe rattlesnake bite. But like I said, overall, it's actually not involved with most cases. In fact, it's involved with very, very few cases. Very interesting. So what is the best way to identify if a snake is venomous? Well, I mean... Ultimately, the best way is watch what happens after you get bitten and see if you develop symptoms. No, uh, I'm kidding. People use all sorts of rules to identify a snake and to distinguish a venomous snake from a non-venomous snake. 
I think you need to use several rules because very few factors are individually, you know, perfect. Now, certainly if there's a rattle on the snake, it's a rattlesnake. But it's important to remember that a rattlesnake can lose its rattles because of trauma. In fact, there's actually a rattlesnake species that's not native to the United States, but it's on Catalina Island that doesn't ever actually develop rattles. So if it has a rattle, it's a rattlesnake. But if it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. You look for a combination of things. Certainly the pattern. You know, most of our venomous snakes in the United States have very distinct patterns. Copperheads, cottonmouths, although people often confuse those two. You know, western diamondback rattlesnakes, timber rustling, they all have unique patterns. That is one way. Also, look at some other factors. Look at the, the head. So I don't want to say look at a triangular head because non-venomous snakes can flatten their heads and make it triangular appearing. So that in itself isn't a good way. But if you can see their fangs, you know, vipers, you know, our crotalids, our copperheads, cottonmouths, rattlesnakes, they have long, very mobile fangs. No other native snakes have teeth like that. So if you see those, it's a pit viper or crotalid. The size of the eye is small relative to the head in our crotalids. What I don't recommend is using pupil shape and size. You know, historically people said, oh, well, it has a, a slit-like pupil, then it's venomous. And if it has a big round pupil, it's not. I don't like that rule because there's exceptions both ways. In low light situations, pit vipers can have big dilated pupils. There's this picture that's been circulating on the internet for years of two copperheads with dilated pupils, round pupils, that you would say, oh, well, that can't be venomous because it's not slit. Conversely, there are some non-venomous snake species that have slit-like pupils, such as the cat-eye snake, uh, which is harmless. What else? And then, of course, coral snakes are you know, responsible for 2% of snake envenomations in the United States, and they're from a whole different family. They are elapids. They are the only elapids native to the Western Hemisphere, and they have large round pupils and large eyes and they don't have triangular heads at all they have a you know a very rounded head completely they look nothing like vipers but people often confuse them with other snakes and sometimes they try to use a rhyme to distinguish coral snakes from other non-venom snakes but there's problems with the rhyme so i'm not going to say the rhyme here because for one people often remember it incorrectly which leads to people intentionally messing with what they think is a non-venom snake but it's a coral snake but also there are exceptions uh, especially in Texas, we have a lot of aberrant patterns where the rules don't apply. And in places like Arizona, we have a lot of non-venomous snakes where the rules that would suggest they're venomous uh, don't apply. So you have to look at a combination of things. Look at the head shape. Look at the color. Look at the pattern. Look at see if a rattle. And then, of course, know what's in your area. You know, people are always insisting that they see copperheads in California. Copperheads are not native to California. There's no copperheads in California. Uh, if you know what is around, then you know, you know what to avoid. I remember learning that rhyme that we will not say in residency as a way to sort of distinguish the the coral snake. So that's interesting to find out that there's actually a lot of exceptions to that rule too. And I know with snakes in general, I mean, there's so much variation. It's really difficult to come up with one way to distinguish something that's venomous or not. But I think what you said about knowing what's in your area is really important. You know, wherever you live, figure out what is venomous, what is in your area. And that way you're, you're sort of armed to help identify 
those snakes when you come across them, if you come across them. So you mentioned a few, but what venomous snakes are native to the United States that people should really worry about? And, you know, if you come across these or accidentally get bitten by them, you should freak out and get to the hospital right away. So taxonomy is always changing. Uh, There was a big revision in 2017. So I can't tell you the exact number of venomous species in the United States. It's about 25 to 30, depending on whom you ask. Broadly, we have coral snakes, which account for 2% of the envenomations in the United States. And then we have crotalids or pit vipers, which account for 98%. And the pit vipers include copperheads, cottonmouths, and rattlesnakes. Depending on whom you ask, I subscribe to the newest taxonomy. So I say there's two species of copperhead. They used to say there's one species with five subspecies. Now a lot of people believe there's two species. So there's two species of copperhead. Similarly, there's two species of cottonmouth. They used to say there was one species with three subspecies. So there's two cottonmouths. And incidentally, cottonmouth and water moccasin are the exact same thing. It amazes me how often I'll hear people say, well, it was a cottonmouth, not a water moccasin. It's the same thing. And then there's 20-odd species of rattlesnakes. One of the things I'm always emphasizing to healthcare professionals and to lay people, any pit viper, copperhead, cottonmouth, rattlesnake, can cause a mild envenomation, a moderate envenomation, a severe envenomation, or a fatal envenomation. So every bite should be taken seriously. Now, on average, a rattlesnake bite is much worse than a copperhead bite. No question about it. But that's averages. Individuals vary. I've seen severe copperhead bites. There have been fatal copperhead bites. There have been six fatalities attributed to to copperheads in the last 33 years. Five of them were in the study we published last year, and another one happened after our date, outside of our date range that happened in 2019. So there have been six fatal copperhead bites. There have been at least three cottonmouth bites that led to fatality, two that we included and one that happened last year in Texas. And then rattlesnakes, you know, timber rattlesnakes account for the most deaths, which doesn't mean that they're the most dangerous. The reason they account for so many is both because they have a huge geographic distribution and because they are the snake of choice in those religious services where people don't seek medical attention after you. Any pit viper can cause a mild, moderate severe, or even fatal envenomation. As for coral snakes, I think they have a little bit of a bad reputation. There's three species of coral snakes in the United States. To my knowledge, there has never been a death from a Sonoran coral snake. There has never been a human fatality from a Texas coral snake. And as I mentioned, there has been one eastern coral snake fatality in the last 30 years. Interestingly, the very first death in, I think it was the Civil War or the Revolutionary War, I'm not a good history buff, there was a death from a coral snake, but that was, you know, hundreds of years ago. But people talk about how dangerous the coral snakes are. There has never been a human fatality attributed to a Texas coral snake envenomation. But sometimes people feel like they're going to die because they're in so much pain. Uh, and that's actually one of the things I'm studying. My research is looking at the geographic variations of Texas coral snake envenomations because it seems like the bites in South and East Texas are different, qualitatively different from the bites in North and Central Texas. But what if they were, if they were at any one of these? So if you get bitten by a snake that you believe is venomous, you need to seek medical attention. Untreated, a copperhead bite, you'll probably survive. You know, there's about a 1% lethality rate for an untreated copperhead bite, as opposed to, say, a Mojave rattlesnake, where it may be as high as 40%. But because everyone's an individual, every bite is unique, you need to be assessed. Yeah, that was another really good point you brought up about the mild, moderate, severe envenomation, or you could have no venom that was injected with a bite. So it's impossible to really tell that on scene or right after the bite, other than you were saying there may be a correlation to pain. Is that? Well, 
one thing I see with the coral snake envenomations in South and East Texas, they're horribly painful. And it's a, it's a paresthesia. It's a, like you're getting shocked or something. It's, it's very different from what I see in the pit vibrovites. People who get bitten by pit vibers say it feels like they're hit with a hammer. So it's severe, but it's a qualitatively different from the paresthesias that I hear people describe with the coral snake. And most of my coral snake victims have pain right away, but not always. And that's one of the things that is important for, again, everyone to remember. Snake bites are dynamic. What looks and, and seems totally innocuous at first can develop into something much more serious over the course of eight hours. That's why we recommend that any potential snake bite gets watched for at least eight hours. And if there's any evidence of envenomation, we watch them for a minimum of 12 to 24 hours, depending on what species it is and what part of the body got bit. One of the things I see all too often, doctors will say, oh, it's a dry bite, and they'll discharge someone after an hour or two. There's no way to know that after one or two hours if you have to watch these longer. Now, I, I shouldn't say there's no way to know that. There's almost no way. I mean, I've been dealing with snake bites full time for what, 14 years. I got called about a kid who got bitten yesterday. And just looking at the, the scratch marks on his hand, I could tell it was a water snake. And he was completely asymptomatic. So I said, go home, come back if you have symptoms. And I called him. He did fine. But in general, because most people don't see a lot of bites in their careers, if there's any suggestion of a snake envenomation, you watch them for at least eight hours. And if they have signs and symptoms, you watch them for at least 12 to 24 hours. And while I, I'm on the topic, let me tell you about my pet peeve. Now, honestly, I have thousands of pet peeves. So let me tell you about one particular pet peeve. You mentioned before, <laughs> okay. sometimes there's no venom. A dry bite is when there's no venom effects. And sometimes snakes choose not to inject venom, or sometimes they have no venom left. They've depleted it. You know, maybe they've used it recently, or maybe they're malnourished, so they couldn't generate enough venom. But regardless of the reason, sometimes a bite doesn't deliver venom, and that's a dry bite. A dry bite will be characterized by a puncture wound and pain at the puncture wound site, and that's it. One of the groups I'm involved with is National Snake Bite Support. It's a Facebook group that exists to help people get advice for managing bites and get advice for when they are the victims or a loved one is the victim. Uh, or it's also for pets. We have a huge cadre of uh, veterinarians. But one of the things I see all the time is, yeah, I got bitten by a snake and I had all this pain and swelling and bruising, but my labs were fine. So my doctor said it was a dry bite. That makes me crazy. Pain and swelling and bruising, those are venom effects. You can't have that from a dry bite. Blood tests cannot exclude an envenomation. If they're really abnormal, that may be suggestive of an envenomation, but you can't exclude an envenomation with normal labs. Most of the time, what we see is local damage, and especially in copperheads and combats, that's almost all we see in the majority of bites. A dry bite means there are no venom effects. If there's any swelling, if there's any bruising, if there's any pain, that's an envenomation. It may not be a serious one, you know, it could be a minimal one, but it's some sort of envenomation. And it kills me when these patients get discharged after two or three hours with clear signs of an envenomation. And, you know, it's bad for the patient, it's bad for the doctor, because that is definitely a potential lawsuit right there. And, and there have been actual lawsuits because of that. So we also have an international audience. Can you tell us about oh, maybe uh, some of the most venomous snakes in the world? That people, yeah, so, what did you say? Oh, I said hola. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What are some of the most venomous snakes in the world that um, people should worry about or be able to recognize? Okay, that, that's a great question. So, so I actually love non-native snakes. And here in Texas, we actually treat a fair amount of non-native bites because people can own whatever they want as long as they have the $20 permit. So I've been fortunate, for lack of another word, to treat all these cobra bites and kaboon viper bites and African bush viper bites. So around the world, there are some really neat snakes. 
that are a lot more dangerous than what we have here in the U.S. We have like, you know, venomous lights. You, you know, we have 3.4 deaths per year on average. There are other places where that's 10, 15, 20, 100 times as much, you know, in the sub-Saharan desert or the Indian subcontinent in Southeast Asia, you have snakes where, you know, you will likely die if you don't get medical treatment and you may die with treatment. Some of those great snakes include, so in Southeast Asia, you have crates, you have uh, a bunch of crates, including the one that killed the famous herpetologist, Joseph Slowinski back in 9-11. His death was kind of overshadowed by what happened uh, in New York and DC. But yeah, he was bitten by a crate and over the next 24 hours he died. You have these cool arboreal pit vipers, like the white lips green tree pit viper that's featured on my arm. That's responsible for like 95% of the deaths in Thailand. And you have other species in that genus. Then you have, in Africa, you have some great snakes. You have African bush vipers, uh, which are actually very popular here in the United States as well. And you may remember that a guy from San Diego at the zoo got bitten a few weeks ago by one of those bush vipers. You also have these carpet vipers that are especially dangerous. You have a variety of cobras. Uh, you have the spitting cobras that can cause neurological toxicity and tissue damage. You have what we call group one cobras that are exclusively neurotoxic that can result in paralysis. You have the mambas, black mambas and green mambas that can cause respiratory paralysis. And sometimes you get muscarinic toxicity at the same time. What are the cool things? You know, in India, you have uh, a mixture of these vipers like Russell's viper. And then you have some of these cobras. You have the king cobra, which isn't technically a cobra, but no one cares if you get bitten. You know, it's, you're still going to have serious you know, neuromuscular problems. You know, in, in South America, you have primarily vipers, just like in the United States, about 2% of the snakes are coral snakes, but they have a variety of coral snakes. Here, we only have three species, two of which are not that really serious. But down in South America and Central America, you have a variety of coral snakes, some of which are pretty serious. But you also have some great classic vipers. You have your neotropical rattlesnake. You have your bushmaster, which is the largest venomous snake in the Western Hemisphere and second only to the king cobra in the world. Uh, you have all sorts of cool uh, snakes from the genus Bothrops. You have, you know, the lancehead, you have the fertilance, you have the, the golden lancehead. You know, there's this island off the coast of, I think, Brazil that is so crowded with golden lanceheads that you're not allowed to go on the island because there's some ungodly number per square acre or per acre of, of snakes. There's just so many of them. And there's snakes almost everywhere. You know, in Australia, they have all these great snakes that are so potent. Fortunately, many of them are not aggressive. And fortunately, the Australians are really good at managing snake bites. But you have your taipans, you have your deaf adders. You know, you'll find snakes anywhere. In Europe, they have a variety of adders. You know, you even have snakes north of the Arctic Circle. I think it's great if anyone's planning on going somewhere, he or she should look up what are the potential threats and be prepared for it. You know, have a plan, you know, whom you're going to call, what you're going to bring, you know, what you're going to do. Because there's so many great snakes in this world, and a lot of them are a lot more serious than what we have here in the U.S. Okay, so now that I am thoroughly terrified by all of the snakes out there, I didn't even know there was a snake called a death adder. That's terrifying. But so there's a lot of theories about how to treat snake bites. And I mean, I've heard things from like cutting the bite and sucking out the venom, applying tourniquets. So I guess let's talk about a couple different hypothetical situations. Okay. One, you're out in the wilderness and get bitten. So what should you do? And two, you are not in the wilderness. You're in an urban area and you've been bitten by a snake. So in those two situations, what are the steps that someone should take? Okay. So I'm going to assume that you're hiking in the United States and therefore you're dealing with our native snakes. Just because, you know, some things you do for some snakes, say in Australia, are completely different from what you do here in America. Sure. Totally. Many of the interventions 
that were previously recommended have been shown to be useless at best and dangerous at worst. Let's say you're hiking in California and you get bitten by a rattlesnake. The first thing you want to do is make sure you and anyone you're with is safe by getting away from the snake. At one time it was taught, oh, you have to get the snake, bring the snake with you to get treated correctly. First of all, that is not true. Second of all, everyone has a phone now. You can take a picture. But ultimately, we actually don't need to see the snake in order to treat correctly, and I'll talk about that later. So you want to get away from the snake. You don't want to do anything that's going to cause more local or systemic toxicity. In the past, people talked about a tourniquet or some sort of pressure immobilization or lymphatic bandage. Tourniquets are great for life-threatening bleeding. They are horrible for snake bites. The last thing you want to do in extremity that's been envenomated is cut off its arterial blood. So tourniquets, absolutely not. Even pressure immobilization is not recommended. And the reason for that is twofold. One, what we see primarily and, and frequently exclusively with our native bites is local damage. Pressure immobilization will absolutely worsen it. Plus, there was a great paper out of California years ago showing that most people do pressure immobilization incorrectly so that not only are you exacerbating the local damage, you're also increasing the systemic toxicity simultaneously. All the major toxicological associations came out with a position statement a few years ago saying not to do anything like a lymphatic bandage or pressure immobilization. So we don't do that. We don't catch the snake. We don't cut and suck. The last thing you want to do to a snake bite is make it into a wound by digging into it. You won't be able to suck the venom out. This not, doesn't work that way. And if you could, and theoretically, if you had a lesion in your mouth, the rescuer could absorb some of that venom. And interestingly, the people who are most likely to attempt such a thing are those that are most likely to have lesions in their mouths. That's just my own personal bias. Um, but you don't want to do that because you're just going to make this bite into a wound. You don't want to use venom extraction devices. And this is really important. You know, these venom extractors are sold in sporting goods stores and, you know, outdoorsy places and they don't work. We have tons of evidence showing that they don't remove venom. At most, they remove 2%, and on average, they remove 0.1% of venom, so a clinically insignificant amount. But what they do accomplish is cause a negative pressure injury and remove interstitial fluid, so they actually concentrate the venom. They cause more damage, and many of my colleagues and I are involved with a public awareness campaign right now to get these off the market. They're still sold, and it's heartbreaking. Don't use them. Arguably the best editorial ever was written by my friend Sean Bush in 2004, Annals of Emergency Medicine, February 2004. Venom extraction devices or extraction devices don't remove venom. They just suck. And, and that's it. They, they are not good. They are terrible. What else did you not do? You should not try to use any sort of electrical therapy. This has been proposed in multiple like outdoorsy settings and you know magazines and forums. They want to denature the venom, if you will, by hooking up some sort of electrical current. Well, guess what? It denatures the human when you do that. And it's been responsible for causing burns and even fatalities. And it doesn't do anything for the envenomation. What else do you not want to do? You don't want to pack the extremity in ice. Now, this is tough because my friends who've been envenomated say that ice makes them feel better temporarily. Ice for a few minutes is fine. The problem is if you have prolonged ice or cold packs, it can damage the tissue. So you don't want to do that. A lot of these things that were proposed in the past, just you don't want to do anymore. The best thing you do is get to an appropriate facility as quickly as you can. You know, that's why we say the best snake bite kit is a set of car keys and a phone. Now, I don't recommend that you drive yourself. You call 911 uh, if you're by yourself or if you're having any serious symptoms or if a friend can get you to the hospital faster, he or she can drive you. But again, if you're having anything serious, call 911 because they can bring the medical attention to you. But yeah, most things that were proposed previously 
are useless at best, dangerous at worst. The best you want to do is remove anything tight, you know, any jewelry, any clothing. You want to calm the patient. If you have medical supplies, you know, you want to focus on the airway, breathing, circulation, stuff like that. And then you want to position the affected extremity correctly. And this is an important one too. For years, it was taught to put the affected extremity below heart level. And some places still recommend it, but you shouldn't. We have good evidence that that's actually bad for you. The reason it was said to put it below heart level in the past, because there was this theory that elevation would increase the systemic absorption of venom. But realize the amount of venom is so insignificant. The, the volume of venom is so insignificant. Positioning is not going to make much of a difference. However, we see a lot of third spacing, a lot of swelling following a pit viper bite. And those of us who treat snake bites have known for years that when you elevate these affected extremities, the swelling gets better faster and people feel better faster. We all knew this you know, intuitively for years. And as of September of last year, we have data proving this. At the uh, North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology, one of my colleagues presented data showing that elevation improved outcomes. Patients got better faster. Now, some people are still reluctant to elevate too much in the pre-hospital environment because they are concerned about potential systemic toxicity. It's reasonable to keep the affected extremity at heart level. Where I am, where systemic toxicity is really rare, but local damage is common, I elevate as aggressively as I can, as quickly as I can, as high as I can, for as long as I can. And you know what? Patients get better because there's some patients to whom I don't give uh, antivenom for whatever reason, and the elevation makes them better. So definitely not below heart level, either elevation or if you must, at heart level, but not below heart level. And then just get to the hospital. And whether you're an hour away or 30 minutes away or a day away, the treatment is the same. So you gave me two scenarios, but it's kind of the same thing. You just want to get to a medical facility as quickly as you can, and that may take an hour or a day. It's the same treatment. You don't do anything different just because you're farther away. And if it were uh, in a lapid or something that bit the patient, still same recommendations, just get to a hospital as fast as you can. Yeah. The only difference with a coral snake in the United States, we don't worry about tissue injury. It's all neurologic. You could theoretically do pressure mobilization, but as I said before, because people do this incorrectly, you probably don't want to do it because you may make things worse. As for positioning, we don't, we don't worry about swelling. So I recommend keeping the effective extremity in whatever position is most comfortable. If they want to elevate it, elevate it. If they want to keep below heart level, below heart level is fine. Whatever makes them most comfortable. And as I said before, the good thing is, as painful as these bites can be, we don't see a lot of systemic toxicity with the Arizona or Texas coral snakes. We do with the eastern coral snake in Florida and surrounding states. But for the others, it's not really that bad. So it's just focusing on keeping them comfortable and controlling their pain. So what factors influence whether someone would die from a snake bite? So there are so many factors that determine the severity of envenomation. There are factors related to the snake, you know, what species, the size of the snake. So let me address a common misconception. There's this misconception that juveniles are more dangerous than adults. That's based on the assumption that they can't control how much venom they deliver. But first of all, they can. A juvenile can regulate its venom just as well as an adult can. There's some great papers out there, including one by my friend Bill Hayes at Aloma Linda, showing that rattlesnakes can meter out their venom as juveniles just as well as adults. But even if they couldn't, even if they delivered 100% of their venom each time, realize juveniles have way less venom than adults. I'm going to use some fictitious numbers just to illustrate a point. Let's say a juvenile delivered 100% of his 4 milligrams of venom. That's 4 milligrams of venom. And let's say an adult only delivered 25% of his 60 milligrams of venom. That's still, gotta do math again, 15%, right? That's one quarter of 60. 
the adult on average is going to deliver a lot more venom and on average the bite will be more severe so there are snake factors as for adults uh, uh, pardon me as for humans you know the human factors that determine the severity and whether they'll be fatal include things like their overall health are they sick at baseline are they on anticoagulation uh what part of the body got bitten were they bitten on the nose the mouth the neck the hand the foot it depends on what treatments they attempt prior to arrival if they start digging into it that's gonna make things worse and then sometimes it just depends on where they get bitten whether it's tissue versus veins a direct inoculation of venom into a vein is associated with severe systemic toxicity and we often see fatalities in the first hour after that you know fortunately it doesn't happen too often but it has happened and then the person's experience with snakes very rarely do people have anaphylaxis to a snake bite. Anaphylaxis, by definition, requires prior sensitization. Now, they could have a severe envenomation, which looks very similar, but the pathophysiology is different. And again, that's usually because of a direct injection into the vein. But anaphylaxis requires prior sensitization. Well, some people have been previously sensitized. Maybe they've been bitten before, or maybe they work with snakes professionally, so they're exposed to snake venom antigens all the time. If they have anaphylaxis, that's obviously going to result in a much more severe envenomation. There are so many factors, snake and human, that determine the overall severity. You know, we have to treat each one individually because you know it's, it's almost impossible to predict. Too much variation. Yes. Even among snakes from the same species in the same geographic region, they may have different amounts of different venom uh, components. You know, because snake venom is so complicated, they may have completely different makeups of or ratios of venom antigens. So yeah, every bite is unique. So you're wearing a shirt for a nonprofit called the Asclepius Snake Bite Foundation. Tell us a little bit about that. So this is a foundation that my friends founded to provide medical care for snake bite victims around the world. They are all about treating snake bites themselves, teaching other healthcare professionals how to treat snake bites, getting the resources to underserved populations, and and just you know, being a resource for people who need help managing snake bites. Jordan Benjamin is a wilderness paramedic who founded it. Nick Brandenhoff's the medical director. A lot of my colleagues are involved with it. It's a great organization. I have devoted money because I have not devoted any time to them, but I, I collaborate with these guys and it's just a great organization. And they are sponsoring a really wonderful educational event. Uh, this year in Denver on October 6th, it's the first Denver Venom Conference. It's similar to the conference I do in Houston. And it has a mixture of clinicians and biologists talking about everything you know about snake envenomation and to some extent other envenomations, but it's primarily snakes and has a great lineup of speakers. Uh, I'm speaking on pre-hospital management of snake bites, just kind of what we talked about. And uh, it's just a really high quality event. It should be a lot of fun. And I encourage everybody to check it out. It's, it's intended for not only medical people, but for people who are interested in being outdoors, herpetologists and biologists and hikers. And definitely check out their website and see if you can help them out in any sort of way. That would be great. That's awesome. We will definitely have to check that out. So uh, do you have any last words of wisdom for our listeners? Any stories that you want to tell or um, just any any advice on how to survive a snake bite in your local area? I mean, I have a million stories. I was thinking about all the cool snake bite stories I have. I'm going to tell you one. And actually, this is even a snake bite story. This is an envenomation story. Now, I will say this is a gentleman who experienced six previous snake bites. He had actually lost his thumb to a snake bite, but I got involved with him because he got a Gila monster in animation. He woke up and he had two pitchers of beer for breakfast, and then he decided he wanted to be a pirate. Well, in Arizona, there aren't a lot of parrots, so he did the next best thing. He picked up a Gila monster, 
and put it on his shoulder. He got bit on the neck. Within minutes, he had a severe envenomation. And Gila monster envenomations are characterized by hypotension, you know, massive angioedema, and horrible diarrhea. It seems redundant because there's no diarrhea that's not horrible. But he had airway swelling, hypotension, and diarrhea. And at the first hospital, they were able to force an endotracheal tube down. They threw the kitchen sink at him, and they flew him to me. He arrived about 10 minutes after a sink by victim I was taking care of arrived. And she was totally stable. It was a pretty mild bite. And I said something to her that I've said to no other sink bite victim before or since, because I love sink bites so much. I said, excuse me, while I go see somebody more interesting. And this guy was just sick. He, uh, he was <laughs> a thin, kind of malnourished guy, but he was so swollen. He looked like the Michelin man. And he spent a week on the ventilator uh, because he had so much airway swelling. And ultimately, he recovered just fine. And I don't know if he's lost any more digits to envenomation since, but uh, or suffered any other indignities but that was kind of the coolest story ever but i have many more and uh, i'm gonna say i think the moral of that story is a gila monster is not a good alternative to a parrot <laughs> no no i think gila monsters best admired from a distance you said you asked if i had any last minute words two things i want to say first i encourage people to join the facebook group national sync bite support where my colleagues and i again provide advice uh, about medical, uh, you know, medical management of bites, uh, how to avoid snake bites, just epidemiology of snake bites, anything you want to know about snake bites, what to do, what not to do. We talk about it and we provide all the evidence-based medicine, which is really important because snake bites are not something that most doctors know about. And that's just one thing I want to say. You want to get medical attention after a bite. You want to get the correct medical attention because this is kind of an obscure thing, especially in many parts of the country. You don't want to go necessarily to the closest hospital unless you're having serious symptoms. You don't want to necessarily go to a trauma center. You want to go to a place that has a snake bite expert if there is one. For example, I'm in Houston. I'm not based out of one of the big level one trauma centers, but I still have the busiest snake bite service in the county, probably the state, and you know one of the busiest in the country. You want to know who knows how to manage bites, especially if you're likely to get bitten either because you collect snakes or you're outside a lot. You know, Identify the people who have the expertise where you are, and that's where you want to go when you get bitten, because especially now with all the diversions and closures and other things that make transfers difficult, if not impossible, you know, because hospitals are so full all the time, you may not be able to get to the definitive care. And sometimes it makes more sense to go 30 minutes to the place where you can get the best care rather than go two minutes to a place where you're just going to sit for a day not getting the right care. So know where you live, know what your resources are, and you want to go to the person who's going to manage your bite best. Yeah, completely agree with that. I mean, I'm an emergency medicine physician, and I am very interested in wilderness medicine in the wilderness world. And I still am, you know, definitely not the right person to treat snake bites. Like it's definitely a very specialized area of expertise. So I would echo that just make sure you know where to go and what to do in case you do get a snake bite, especially if you're someone who has a higher risk for getting a snake bite. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up for us today. So thank you as always for listening. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, leave us a comment, or send your favorite episode to your friends and family. This helps us continue generating content. If you'd like to get in touch, please feel free to connect with us on Instagram at The Emergency Docs or on our website at www.theemergencydocs.com. Until next time. 